stop Chalmers surrendering the people's power to central bank cabal and exposed the crazies killing Palestinians to bring on Armageddon. Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 12th of January 2024. Welcome to the new year of Citizens Reports. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing two special reports, actually, that mm. we issued right at the end of 2023, uh, one of which intersects our major campaign at the moment to stop Treasurer Jim Chalmers giving away the power he has to uh, restrain the Reserve Bank of Australia from crushing people with high interest rates, for instance. And, and um, I thought of an alternative headline we could have used, Elisa, demand Chalmers use his power to save households from interest rate extinction. Because mm. he actually has, the, it's not about just um, stopping a bit of legislation here, let's make him use it. The power's there for a reason. And we need to use it. Uh, and on the other topic, we'll be discussing what's happening in the Middle East and how that uh, crisis is threatening to spill over into a much broader war. But specifically, the, what, um, what is the driver, a, an actual plot that has driven this to this point? So, so that people don't fall for the trap of thinking that this is just like, you know, the Middle East conflict is like a tectonic plate shift. Something just happens and then bang, it blows up and that's always that's the place where it's always going to happen. No, no, no. There are people with an agenda that is being pursued, which is the reason you never get peace there, and it's got to be exposed. We've got an explosive report. Um, mm. Now, it's a little bit unfortunate that our show's, you know, not the shortest in the world. Um, so uh, if, you, if you're time poor, make sure you watch the whole show this week because the second part, or you can jump to it, we'll, we'll have it... Um, Mm. Separated on the on the bar on the on the on the control bar there, um, jump to it. Watch this part of the show. It's really really crucial. Yeah, and don't forget in order to circulate it more widely, because as people always say, it deserves broader coverage. Don't forget to hit the like button, leave a comment below, share it on social media, and also make sure if you haven't already that you have subscribed and hit the notification uh, bell for any and all updates. And you can also go uh, look at the box below if you're watching on YouTube, uh, or you can call us on the number on the screen if you're watching on one of the lonely Channel 31 uh, community TV shows. But if you're watching on YouTube, the link below, you can donate to the cause. Uh, we need much support to keep this camp all of our campaigns going. And there's a number of them actually at the moment. In fact, we should, um, before we start, probably mention a couple of deadline dates. Yes. Well, um, let's, let's start with the first deadline. So um, the 19th of January mm. is the deadline for submissions people can make to the Senate inquiry into the digital ID bill. And there's all sorts of things that can be said about the digital ID bill. One of the issues that, that relates to it is, is um, the government's insisting that it's going to be voluntary. And if it was a purely voluntary thing where you only had you only used a digital ID for your convenience if you chose to, that, that would be one thing. Except one of the issues that came up in some of our other work last year is that it's not just the banks 
pursuing a digital agenda. It's the governments as well, and they're pushing, they, they find ways to say to people, oh, to access this service, you must have a digital ID, right? And that's how they can make it compulsory. So, um, and of course, once everyone has signed up to that, then we're in the realm of what we had with the Australia card in the, in what they wanted to do with the Australia card in the 80s. Now, the public rejected the Australia card in the 80s. Don't let them sneak this in by stealth. So, um, that's the submissions to that close on the 19th of January. Now, on the 2nd of February, submissions close to what we're going to talk about today, which is the, the bill by which Jim Chalmers is surrendering his power to save you from being crushed by interest rates. He's giving the power to the people who are crushing you by in, with interest yeah. rates. He's giving it away. What politician gives away power? Politicians who serve bankers who will then give away that power to bankers. That's what he's doing. And those submissions close on the 2nd of February. We, everyone must Crucial. flood that one with, mm. with um, uh, submissions. And the third one, Elisa, later in February is there is the, the bank inquiry into bank, the Senate inquiry into bank closures in regional Australia is open for, for more submissions mm. um, because they've extended the inquiry and submissions that one closed at the end of February. So um, uh, anything to do with cash, bank closures, the digital agenda, etc., make submissions to that inquiry. Yeah, if you know of examples of the impact of closure of bank branches, ATMs, yeah. etc., in your areas, lack of cash, those things. So that's the 29th of February that those yeah. are due. So, um, in intersecting that topic, stop Chalmers surrendering the people's power to central bank cabal. And just, we've already introduced what the topic is, and just to lead into that, um, the global financial situation is extremely tenuous coming into the new year and it was interesting to see that on the 20th of December last year the Australian Financial Review actually um, had a, a discussion about one of the potential fracture points in the global financial system which relates to the US Treasury market which is considered to be the cornerstone of mm. global capital markets as they put it in the article and they put out the warning from US regulators who are at the moment living in fear of a repeat of the, um, the uh, complete freezing up of US Treasury markets, you know, sales and resales and um, the trading that goes on in what's called the repurchase markets or repo markets. And people might remember that in September 2019, um, that completely blew up and threatened yeah. to implode the in entire, not only American, a global banking system and there were massive efforts to prop it up at that time by the Fed pumping in money. So that happened in 29, late 2019. Then in March 2020, coinciding with the COVID crisis, the same thing happened again and there was a huge crunch point of US Treasury markets. Um, we, not in the US, but in the UK, we also had a major blow up of the UK bond market in 2022. And then of course, last year, we had a series of banking crises in the United States, which included uh, the second, third and fourth largest bank failures in US history. And this is all of course, part of the one box and dice. And one of the mechanisms is that because you, because, um interest rates were so low for so long. You've got all these government securities, US treasuries, UK gilts, etc., that were issued at less than 1% interest. Mm. 
And now the interest rate is 4%, mm -hmm. right? And so government securities are being issued at 4%, and no one wants to keep holding the 1%, less the, the securities are less than 1%. And so they're worthless, but banks are holding these as yeah. collateral for other things, et cetera. And it's a, and it, it, it's a psych... Um, it's created psychosis really in the in the whole market and there's this freezing up and uh, uh, you know that's what we saw with these big bank collapses in mm. America last year so the warning is um, we're still in that territory and the AFR pointed to something that we've been uh, reporting on in the Australian Alert Service for a few years now which is the fact that a very small handful of what are known as hedge funds which are essentially banks, yep. that they don't take deposits, but they are investment style banks that operate exclusively in the realm of trading speculative, the most speculative forms of financial contracts you can come across, which are known as derivatives. So they point to three major hedge funds um, that have complete control, have cornered control of the US Treasury market. Um, which should never have been the case where you give mm. such mm. small, concentrated private institutions control of a market that's meant to fund the US government, the yep. US treasuries, right? Um, so they say that That's, they... If I can interject with a quote, that in its essence is fascism. Ownership <laughs> of government by a small, controlling private power. That, that's a paraphrase of a Frank, Franklin Roosevelt yep. quote from 1938 to the US Congress. He says, when basically, when government is owned by a small collection of powerful private people, that's fascism. Well, if three yeah. hedge funds are controlling the US Treasury market, that's fascism. Well, that's right. And then um, the one hedge fund strategist himself that they cited said that these hedge funds have now become too big to fail, just like the big yeah. banks became too big to fail. So they've create by try using these hedge funds to try to solve the situation since these big blow-ups from 2019 on over the last five years, they've actually created a whole new crisis. And this is what our analysis has been for decades now from the Australian Citizens Party is that you need to junk the whole financial system essentially and create a new one. And that's what we're going to talk about in a moment. But first, um, we want to discuss some of the bank bad behaviour continuing across Australia in the same context we've just described because it's all part of the whole same system which now the banks are having to loot the people more and more to keep this bubble afloat and that involves um, providing less services, shutting down branches, doing everything online and digitally and leaving cash. communities in the lurch. Yeah, well, we, we finished... 2023 was spectacularly successful in terms of the work of the Citizens Party. And I had a senator um, call me uh, in the new year to, to reflect on what was happening. And he said the, the, the success story of 2023 was the banking uh, closures inquiry um, because it really struck a, a chord and the whole country's paying attention to it now, especially the people um, in government. And the, our biggest allies in that campaign, Elisa, are these absolute bastards who also happen to be morons who run the banks because they refuse to stop doing the bad behaviour that is literally organising a lynch mob outside their gates. People want to hang them and these bastards, these moronic bastards, refuse to stop that behaviour. So what did we see? I'll give you two cases. One was, the first was Michelle Bullock, the chief banker in Australia, the head of the Reserve Bank. 
she does, she does this uh, interview where they float the idea that there should be a surcharge put on cash transactions, put it like there is on credit card. Now there's a great meme, everyone would have seen it by now, of people, everyone's talking about if you, if, if you have a $50 note and you go and spend the $50 note and that person, that, that, tr that business person takes that $50 note and he spends it and that person takes that $50 note and they spend it, it can go around 10 times, 50 times, 100 times, 1,000 times and it's still a $50 note. But if you take your credit card and you spend $50, the cert, there'll, there'll be a surcharge taken off that and then that, that business has $49 and a bit to spend and they go and spend it and there's a surcharge taken off that, etc. After 50 transactions, the thing's gone. The money is gone. And where's it gone? Into the banks, right? And so the difference between cash and one of the real attractions to small business um, and, and consumers is cash is free. And in order to put the scales, her thumb on the scales, to benefit the banks, Michelle Bullock wants to put a charge mm. on cash. And her complaint was, her justification was, small business don't know the real cost of using cash because that cash, that cost is borne by the financial institutions. The poor banks. The poor banks. The banks are carrying the cost of using cash. That is their business. The baker's job, the baker carries the cost of buying the flour and paying for the electricity to make the ovens work to make the bread. That's their business. The bank's business is money. There's a cost to, do, to deal with money. They should wear that cost. I feel like calling her a goddamn awful name. This is insane. <laughs> this, and it's just tipping the scales, pushing the scales in favour of the banks. So... That was one example, that was just before Christmas. And the other one, also just before Christmas, there was a bushfire in Perth, at, on the fringes of Perth, near where um, we were talking to a friend of yours we're, uh, over there. Um, this man got completely burnt out. His pets were killed in the fire. His cards were destroyed in the fire. He goes to ANZ Bank on the Friday afternoon to, and said, I need cash. He goes to his bank. I need cash. And they said, sorry, we've essentially closed the till. We've, we've, we've um, signed off on the books for the day. We can't help you. And by the way, they closed early that day to have a Christmas party. This is an essential service. The Friday before New Year's Christmas Eve, the busiest Friday in the year, the banks close when everyone's doing their last minute stuff. The banks close early to have a Christmas party. Can I, this is a little bit controversial. I've got a message here for the Finance Sector Union who I've helped to work with this year on the closures. Get your act together. You're, the Finance Sector Union are the first to jump up and down about our, we look after our staff. Yeah, look, definitely look after your staff. But it cuts both ways. If you want to keep your jobs and, and, and not, and not, and not and, you know, so banks have to consider you when they shut branches. If you want to keep your jobs, don't put your staff's Christmas party ahead of serving your customers. And in this particular case, I want people to think about this. These are just normal bank staff who could not find the humanity in them on a Friday afternoon in Perth to help a man who had just been completely wiped out by a bushfire. Now, that is not because they are the world's biggest a-holes, Elisa. I'll tell you why. That. You become the world's biggest a-hole under duress, under extreme pressure. 
the, the management structure from the top coming on down from ANZ is turning these people who are afraid of, for their jobs into a-holes. Union guys in the banks, bank tellers, stand up for yourself and start fighting for you and for everybody else. Do not tolerate this. You've got to fight from the inside like the public is starting to fight from the outside. But that's the nature of what these financial institutions are like. And they are just going to, if they're going to keep acting like this, mm. they will be the cause of their own undoing. Now, we've got another mongrel act to talk about. <laughs> well, this was the highlight. Because also, just before Christmas, the great bank warrior, and he's truly great, Michael Sanderson. We love you, Michael. So there's a... Uh, in the lead up to the global to the Banking Royal Commission and then in the wake of the Banking Royal Commission, a group formed of bank victims formed. And I love these guys. I take my hat off to them because they are, they are, they are people who are absolutely crushed by the banking system themselves. But they have not just settled for lobbying for their own case. Mm. They've formed themselves into this little group called Bank Warriors. They bought shares, just a small packet of shares in every bank in Australia they could find. <laughs> They put on bow ties and they go to an annual general meeting so that they have the right to ask questions directly of these bankers. Mm. And in this case, um, Michael Sanderson, these, these AGMs are filmed, and so Michael Sanderson went to a couple of them. Now, um, this is not on the rundown, but I have to apologise here. Uh, I want to play a very short clip first, and I'll, the producer, you've got to chase me up for this afterwards, um, of the ANZ... AGM, and it's not so much what Michael says in this one, it's, it's the response of the two ANZ guys when he's talking about bank closures, and watch both of them, I can't, the guy with the, the, the Scottish Irish accent, I, I don't know his name, we'll put it on the screen, but the other one was Shane Oliver, the, the Shane um, Elliott, the CEO, both sit there, lying, stand there, lying through their teeth, look at them say how much they value branches, just watch. What's the speculation or what have you got on the agenda for the next 12 months for branch closures throughout Australia? Thank you. I'm going to invite Shane to comment in a moment, but I think it's important to stress we like branches. You know, they give us a much better opportunity to engage with customers. The problem is customers don't necessarily like branches, and that's been changing very quickly. So, Shane, did you want to talk a little bit about the statistics we've been seeing on branches? Yeah. I mean, the reality is we'd love for the branches to have more customers in them, um, but the reality is our customers are voting uh, with their feet and deciding that they generally, not everybody, but they prefer to be able to do things on their mobile or in other ways. And so we have to respond, just like any business, we respond to the changing needs of our customers. I mean, contrast that to what I just told you, the story of the ANZ. Contrast that to the ANZ whistleblower a month earlier who came out and said, we are under instructions not to serve customers when they come into the bank. I've, we'll put up a, a photo I took at High Point Shopping Centre where I, I, saw the, I saw the Commonwealth Bank and there was a massive queue outside the Commonwealth Bank and I took that photo and tweeted it and said, see, Australian Banking Association, people still use banks. And when I went to the ANZ, when I walked past the ANZ Bank, I saw a queue in there, but it wasn't at the teller, it was at the ATM. There was a queue at the ATM inside the ANZ branch at High Point. There was a man sitting behind the, there was a teller sitting behind the desk doing nothing all those people have been instructed to use that ATM because, as the whistleblower has told us, the reason for that is so they don't count as visits to the bank. And those two men, in the, a month after that whistleblower went public with that, those two guys stood up there in that AGM and just said what you just heard. 
And all the politicians have to know they are lying through their teeth. Lying through their teeth. So that's, that's that one. Anyway, Michael Sanderson elicited that response. The best one, they will play the whole thing. This goes for six and a half minutes. He decided to confront Westpac over the closure of the Cooper branch. And so what's the exchange? And especially, and I want people to watch right to the end and look at what the chairman of Westpac, the former CEO of ANZ, John McFarlane, says about our solution of a public bank. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'd like to introduce you to Mr. Michael Sanderson. Grand finale. Cooper PD, wasn't that a mongrel act? On the 10th of February, Westpac gave the impression to a Senate committee, the media and towns it was about to debank that Westpac would pause regional branch closures pending the outcome of the Senate's inquiry into bank closures in regional Australia. Westpac stated, this is an email to the committee, in response to the committee's request, Westpac will postpone eight regional branch closures that were announced in February 2023. In this Weasley worded undertaking, Westpac failed to mention that it was still proceeding with the bulk of its planned closures. A further 13 Westpac and Westpac-owned branches that, unless you were following the issue closely, you would not have known about. A week after the announcement, on the 17th of February, Westpac debanked Cooper PD. This mongrel act also made the Senate committee and the majority of the media look like a bunch of mugs. Westpac's decision to reverse the closure of the eight regional banks proves that they were viable branches all along. Will Westpac apologise to the residents of Cooper PD and do the right thing and reopen the branch? Peter. Well, I think we were very clear in our communication about what we were and, and weren't doing. Uh, whenever we look at closing a branch in regional Australia, we're also looking at alternatives. So Australia Post uh, and ATMs. So I think we were clear in our communication uh, and we also considered alternate banking solutions uh, in, in those cities when we, we no longer have a bank. With, with respect, Peter, the Senate committee reacted as if you complied with their request for a moratorium on closure of all branches. The email did not reflect that. So we, what you're saying is fundamentally we, we, incorrect. The media also misinterpreted differently. So how can you say that the message was clear when the Senate committee didn't get it, the media well, didn't get it, nor did the general public? We were very clear in our communication. You weren't. Um, on the same matter, same related matter, not the same matter, the ACCC uh, in the um, Suncorp uh, ANZ determination stated there is an accommodative and synchronised approach between major banks, which was not unexpected and is enabled by the oligopoly market. Now, there are about another three comments in that vein, in that determination. 
When New Zealand established the publicly owned Kiwi Bank, it is my understanding that the big four Australian banks stopped all branch closures immediately and did so for the following six years. The big four's synchronised approach was sacrificing a service on the sacred altar, altar sorry, of obscene profit. Kiwi Bank entered the market offering a profitable service where it was claimed it was unprofitable to operate. This demonstrates that regional banks are profitable and are an essential service that communities need, use and support. Would it improve Westpac's moral compass clarify its social obligations and the board's thought process if a publicly owned post bank was established here in Australia? Uh, I think that's a matter for government. So you know, Australia Post is owned by the government. Whether they want to go into financial services or not is for them. I think you've heard me talk about how we think about services and digital and, and physical and transition over time. Uh, and we will work with communities as we transition. I don't think this is a trend in terms of digital trend that's going to slow down. Uh, it's going to be something that impacts financial services, corporate and government services, so we've got to help people transition into the digital world. But you're wrong in saying that these were coordinated by the major banks. That is not the, correct, not the case. In fact, it's illegal to do so. There's a lot of things that are legal. Yeah. I go back to the letter that the four major banks wrote to the uh, parliament authorising the, um, effectively authorising the uh, Banking Royal Commission. Mm. You know, th there's, you talk to each other. Uh, th 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 it's, it's in black and white, and probably a few other colours as well. But you talk, you know, the ACCC made that quote, not me. And as I said, there was four references to oligopoly type interaction. Yes, references, opinions, not facts. Well, okay, well, the Kiwi Bank, you all were closing them. Yeah. Kiwi Bank starts up, you all stopped. Uh, as I said. Well, thank anyway, you. look, I'll leave it there. Thank you for you've, your you've put well, thank, up with me enough. Well, thank you for your comment. I, you know, also, um, I, having been in business a long time, you know, um, good luck with governments running commercial enterprises. Um, it, it hasn't worked very well in most other cases. Uh, thank you. you. You're not prepared to say to the, on, here that we'll reopen Cooper Beatty? No, we've made our decision. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, Elisa, um, as I said, John McFarlane is the former CEO of ANZ. I know when, when Kiwi Bank started, ANZ, they are the Australian New Zealand Bank, they were shocked at how successful it was. That's why there were from 2002 to 2009, there were no bank closures in um, New Zealand in the wake of the, the starting of Kiwi Bank. And all these smug bastards can do is sit there and go, oh, good luck government running a, a bank. Yeah. yeah, governments ran banks for 100 years, well over 100 years. That uh, Alexander Hamilton was 200 years ago, right? And good luck the world surviving the mess that we started mm. off talking about that you guys created, the private bankers created, that blew up in 2008 and we're still dealing with the consequences of it now. Well, and that's a perfect segue to talk about the pamphlet we want to talk about because it's the power of national banking harnessed by governments 
of creation of credit to build economies. This is what banks to were invested in the real to things. do. Yep. Banks were invented to facilitate the growth of an economy, to which is designed to allow people to live. Yep. Um, all the things that that requires, and uh, as you said, Alexander Hamilton invented a system that would work for any nation and was in fact adopted by many nations over time, including Australia. And Australia had the most successful example of a national government-run bank um, for many years, the Commonwealth Bank, of course, the People's Bank as it was known and is still popularly known. Um, and it was the, the threat of that credit system, that approach, spreading across the world, which after the American Civil War and Lincoln's victory and Lincoln bringing back Alexander Hamilton's approach using the green banks and harnessing credit yep. in that way, uh, nations across Europe adopted that. Russia, Germany, France had plans to build continental infrastructure projects across the continent, a bit like what the condemned Belt and Road Initiative represents today. The they pa wanted to Paris to Vladivostok Railway between the Russians and the French. Yeah, and, and uh, Gabriel Hanateau, the foreign minister of France, had plans to build railway lines all across Africa and develop an unlift Africa. And the threat of that um, caused the British Empire, which, you know, Britannia ruled the waves very openly at that time, um, in, in an imperial format, they were forced to somewhat, uh, they had to crush it. Because if you rule the ways, you do not want people to build railway lines across the continents where they don't need to use the waves anymore. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's at least one aspect yeah. of it. And of course, there's another um, financial aspect, which is equally important uh, as a part of that. And that was the City of London domination of banking control even for you know hundreds of years earlier of gold and silver and all of the conduits for world trade. Well in banking Elisa the borrower the, the, the lender has the power over the borrower right and the reason the the global banking elite want a totally private banking system is because that gives them power over governments. If governments have their own banks and are not going cap in hand to the private banks they have full sovereignty. Mm. Right? And so the, 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 the globalised banking system we've got now is a British creation. The city of London this day is still the biggest financial centre in mm. the world. This is their system and they saw the emergence of this national banking thing mm. and they said, we're going to crush this. We have to crush this. This is a matter of an existential threat to our control. And so this pamphlet that we issued before the end of the year is a series of nine articles that I wrote over the last five years and were published over the last year in the Australian Alert Services um, Centrefold Almanac, um, the genesis of austerity. And what it maps out is that the British used two elements in order to crush this capacity of humankind to thrive and develop using national banking. One is war, mm. the other is economic ideology. and. They're the same two things we're battling today, which we talk about in the lead of this week's Australian Alert Service. You know, the threat of war is coming because of the financial system through which this um, City of London Wall Street apparatus have extend most of their control is crumbling. It's coming down. And they have to prevent the kind of alliances 
uh, just as they had to, as I said, at the uh, turn of the century, the late 1800s coming into the 1900s, where you had these great European powers looking to collaborate because they wanted to uplift their nations and their peoples. And so, as we discuss in this document, World War One was the result of um, a deliberate effort to spread perpetual warfare. And just like today, it included a, a series of assassinations, manipulations. The British would go to various countries and foster pseudo-political movements. They would run regime change. And these all seemed like separate, disparate things that just emerged in their own rights within countries like things that emerged in Ukraine. Mm. But they were all controlled and manipulated. And of course, that war, that World War I, uh, split off Germany from cooperate, which was in the centre, and completely crushed any attempt, any effort to have collaboration because of the alliances and so forth that were going on at that time. So that's one part of it. But the bigger impact, the indelible impact of that war, was that after World War I, in the 1920s, uh, a series of efforts were um, made to create a new economic dogma, uh, which can be loosely called austerity. Today, of course, we call it neoliberalism. Um, but all the policies of deregulation, of giving the banks control in order to loot the population, and this is something that had been done previously by the British Empire under the imperial system and, and look at the British East India Company which you've written extensively about operating in India. The mm. word loot was a Hindu word yep. meaning to go and plunder the population so that this private company, the British East India Company, could make massive profits at the expense of an entire nation and it was that system that was the design after World War I to, was to extend such a system on a global scale, essentially under equally private control, not operated by governments, um, to effect these policies of austerity, budget cutting, and it was, that everything after World War I was blamed on the population yep. being too excessive, yes. you know, consuming too much butter and sugar, yes. um, spending too much money because after the war and, and during the war, of course, governments had to make decisions to spend because when war comes, you well, have to no, spend. There's no lack of it. There's no, there's, they, they, they roll out the, the treasuries, they open them up and then, and they borrow like crazy and the war debt goes through the, through the absolute roof, right? And that's actually why bankers get involved in promoting wars. They, they make so much money of it, but that money has to be paid back and therefore they've got to brainwash the public into thinking somehow this is their fault. Oh, yeah, yeah. I shouldn't have had butter on my bread that day. I mean, it, and it literally came down to these arguments yeah. about bread and butter. Mm, yeah, no, so um, the, the plan was the Supreme War Council, which were the great powers that, you know, ran um, on, on the British side of the war, they set up a Supreme Economic Council, which created the League of Nations, and that was the world's first, you know, international organisation. And they were sent into the worst of the war-torn countries. I mean, you had the reparations imposed on Germany, yeah. which was all administered by the League of Nations, but you also had countries like Austria. Uh, and Austria became a test case, which I've documented in the article, where the literally the government of Austria handed 
all the economic and financial policy decisions to a League of Nations commissioner who came into the country and lived there and you know, all the decisions were taken out of the realm of elected officials, which we see again happening today, and given to these economic technocrats and experts who were the only ones who could foster financial stability. Yeah. Um, and the same thing happened in Italy. We document the case of Italy, which was the only way they could impose that framework because the people wouldn't accept it, was by imposing Mussolini. fascism. Yep. Mussolini was being advised who by... Was a, who was an MI5 agent, he was on MI5's payroll, and they sponsored the rise of this guy to imp imp implement the fascist project in uh, Italy to enforce this system. Exactly. Um, and Mussolini was advised by all the same economic experts from the circles of the League of Nations, which was populated from the British Treasury, the Bank of, Bank England. of England. These are the people who devised in 1930 during the war, and Montague Norman worked closely with the economics, the fascist, the, well, the Nazi economics minister, Hjalmar Schacht, to set up the Bank for International Settlements as an international institution that would superimpose policies globally when it came to banking and finance. So they wanted to create central banks that had more power than governments, could, could dictate to governments, and then a, a, um, a central bank for central banks where this small group, do dominated by the Bank mm. of England, Montague mm. Norman, could dictate to the whole world. That is the model that he plotted in the 20s, and it's slowly evolved into that model today. Yep. And, and you know, led to the fight in the 30s here in the Great Depression, right? Because it was about, well, the central bank, mm. it wasn't quite called the central bank then, but the Commonwealth Bank do what was good for the people mm -hmm. and they refused to. Mm. And so um, the, the Labor Party said, well, no, okay, no, the people must have the ultimate authority over the banks, not the other way around. Mm. And we, ha we got that implemented, but that power has never been used and now that there's this greater push than ever for a concentration of... I mean, you talked earlier about the, the three hedge funds that control US Treasuries. Yeah. We're in this world where BlackRock, through shareholdings, controls literally every main major multinational corporation in the world, and they can dictate, they, they can dictate all these unofficial, unofficially all these economic policies on the world, etc. That concentration of elite power has never been greater. And the Bank for International Settlements has never been a more important focus of it. That's where bail-in was invented to you to rip to, to steal from the public to, to prop up banks, etc. Um, and so, as this big final push is taking place, what is Australia doing? What is Australia doing? The, our Treasurer Jim Chalmers is handing over the power he has over the bank to back to the bank, so that he has no power over it. Mm. That's what we're dealing with. And you've, the whole history is laid out in this. This is an excellent, all these articles, this, the whole series is in this pamphlet. Get it. There's a link below on our website. Get it and read it. It's, it's very valuable. Yeah. Um, you know, the, everything that Australia experienced in the microcosm was what um, had been happening, doc, as documented here, all throughout Europe, but essentially a global apparatus. Now, are we willing to allow our treasurer to say to yep. sign over the last remaining power which was we are, we were surprised honestly to figure out that it was even still there yeah, that's true as i think were they <laughs> the, the people that did the rba review um you know were surprised to see 
I think that that power was still there and we're like, oh my God, we have to get rid of this in a hurry. Because the point is, we are close to a point with the political capacity we've built as an institution and senators in the Australian Parliament who have hammered the Reserve Bank on this question, demanding they use the Reserve Bank for what it should be used for and use these powers. Yep. Um, one final thought, Elisa. Let's put it, like, as I said at the very beginning of the show, let's turn it around. But let's not just talk about not giving up the power. Mm, yeah. Let's actually demand Chalmers start using it. Every time the Reserve Bank either raises rates or every choose the first Tuesday of every month raises rates or keep them on hold, Chalmers has the power to overrule that decision and say, no, you are crushing households. Now, we've got, just got a briefing this morning that said how there's a rise in the number of people who are going to borrow to pay their mortgage arrears. Mm. And they're borrowing at 20% interest mm. to pay their mortgage arrears. That's how much this, the, 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 it's the fastest raising of interest rates in history and it's crushing people just so that the Reserve Bank can meet their inflation target when there's other ways to deal with inflation. Jim Chalmers has the power, to, he gets, every time they raise rates, he gets up there and he looks so f sour at them. You know, you're making my life uncomfortable. How dare you do that? You know, he doesn't, doesn't say how dare you do that, but he, but he, you know, oh, I feel your pain. He has the power to do something about it. Let's start demanding he do. And it shouldn't just be rate, lowering rates. It has to be lowering rates in a certain way. Put restrictions on lending into, say, investors in property, foreign investors in property. They shouldn't, the bank shouldn't be allowed to lend to them, but on, but on the interest rates on first home buyers and on existing households, they should be lowered, mm. right? So those people can survive. They need housing. Yeah. Anyway, so we've got, we'll put our stuff on that. We've got the capacity to take yep, that yep. targeted approach is the point if we don't give it away. So make your submission by the 2nd of February, please. This is crucial. Now, on to our next topic. Exposed the crazies killing Palestinians to bring on Armageddon. And that you know, might seem like an extreme thing that there's people that actually want to bring on Armageddon, but oh my God, you read this well, what, pamphlet. So we, we're, Alyssa, we're not going to do justice to this whole subject today. In fact, this is the first time we're talking about it and we will, we will mm. have more discussion on this in coming weeks. I'm planning an interview on Citizens Insight mm. um, on this subject, right? Um, but we'll have a link below to this. Plunging towards World War III, the Made in London Temple Mount plot behind the Israel-Hamas war. And if you want to, this is a this is lengthy research. This is this is research that was first published 20 years ago, a bit over 20 years ago, that has been republished because the plot has continued yeah. unbroken since and then. And republished with new material. Republished as well. with that's right, that, that's right. Look at the link below and start reading this report and sharing it widely. It's very very important because. As I said, this is not about, uh, don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, the Middle East is like the ring of fire in the Pacific with tectonic plates. That's mm. where, if an earthquake's going to happen, it's going to happen in the Pacific. If there's going to be a, a flashpoint for war, it's going to happen in the Middle East. No. It's just inevitable. <laughs> and, yeah. don't, don't allow yourself to think mm. about your fellow human beings like that, right? No, no, there are people who, there are geopolitical powers that want to use this. And again, it just happens to be mainly the British and look, it's urgent because in the last, just in the new year, on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of January, there's been a number of incidents, an assassination of a Hamas leader in Lebanon, a terrorist bombing of the memorial service for General Qasem Soleimani. And they make this, by the way, Lisa, with, with this, this Soleimani bombing was atrocious. The, mm. the West is behind that. Don't, yeah. don't kid yourself. 
there are, there are evil people in the CIA and MI6 who are behind that bombing. That guy's a hero. They make him out to be evil. He defeated ISIS. Donald Trump didn't defeat ISIS. He was too busy kissing his own ass, right? Soleimani defeated ISIS, working with the Syrians, etc. And they, they, they feel... I remember when this first happened, there was a US in 1990 or something, the Attorney General of the United States, I think his name was Thornton or somebody, he declared this doctrine, America has the right to assassinate people. Mm. So assassinate other, that's our, our right, right? And it was the ultimate hubris. That's how they think. And they just said, Mike Pompeo, one of the evil, most evil men going around the world today, a, a sanctimonious, mm. a hypocritical, professed Christian, but he's it, you know, like one of these just fake religious guys, right? Um, he organised Trump to murder that guy. And so the, the Iranians and the, the, the people who support Soleimani know what a hero was. They go and pay tribute at his, at his uh, uh, grave and bang, they organise a terrorist attack to kill 70 people or something like mm. that. Uh, they want to bring Iran in. They, someone wants well, to bring Iran into a war. Exactly. And, and then it the is point. almost World War III. And, you know, many people are saying if, <coughs> if Israel gets that, they'll be crushed. They won't exist anymore. But speaking of U.S. assassinations, the other incident was the U.S. drone assassination of this Iraqi leader, a militia leader, who, I mean, the Iraqi government's outraged about it because he's part, he's a commander in Iraq's popular mobilisation uh, forces, which is part of a state-sponsored yeah. group of militias. He's, he's not, an he's official not some, guy. It wasn't some terrorist cell. It's, he's an official guy, and the Americans say, well, we're going to kill him. You know, so, so now Iraq might want to kick out America and their troops that are there. Um, so all of this, though, is uh, these are threats to expand the war more broadly because of the tensions and the, the, plate, the sh plate shifts that are going on because of that initial conflict. And I just before we get into a little bit of the flavour of this report, I want to also mention the really important development this year or late last year, um, which was South Africa filing at the International Court of Justice a petition regarding Israeli violations of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, which is known as the Genocide Convention. Um, and it's filing, which will be discussed today and tomorrow, and they'll present uh, evidence. Well, it, well it's because it's, it's on the other US side of the time. world. It's already started. So overnight, the, the case was um, already being argued in the court. Yeah. So uh, now... The petition that they, they initially filed at 85 page or so report which states that Israel's actions in Gaza are genocidal in character because they intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial and ethnical group. And they have detailed material which is absolutely blood curdling when you just read it all there in the one place. Um, but what I want to do to somewhat summarise the situation as it stands is to play a report of former US Ambassador Chaz Freeman in an interview that he gave. Where Chaz, he Chaz is proof that not everyone in the United States at a government level, even though he's retired, but you know, like there are very sensible people there. They're just, they're just not in charge of Washington at the moment. He, so he was the ambassador to Saudi Arabia. He was, he was the guy who translated for, for Nixon when he went to China. And, and met Mao Zedong in the um, in the 70s. Um, he's been right at the centre of, of mm. this uh, US decision making for decades. This is his commentary mm. on this most intense crisis in the world right now. And this was uh, late last year as well. And, but yep. he calls the current Netanyahu government the most genocidal cabinet ever. So watch this. 
Well, I think um, it's very clear what Israel wants. Uh, it's made no secret that it wants to depopulate Gaza um, by whatever means it can, um, uh, by uh, starving people into leaving, uh, by expelling them, or by killing them all. Uh, and it is no, there's no question that it meets the definition of genocide. Uh, they have the intent to destroy an entire people. Uh, they have the ability, and they are, in fact, carrying out an operation intended to do so. Uh, so that is very clear. I think it's also quite clear why Hamas did what it did. Uh, that is, this was in the nature of a jailbreak uh, from the world's largest concentration camp. And the whole thing is particularly macabre because it is such a vivid reminder of the Warsaw Ghetto, a very parallel situation in which, um, driven beyond uh, any ability to tolerate what was being done to them, the Jewish inhabitants of the Warsaw Ghetto rose against Nazi Germany, and the Nazis exterminated them all and leveled, leveled the ghetto. The fact that you've got a, an Israeli cabinet, which is the most determined genocidal cabinet the world has ever seen. Um, and I don't excuse the Nazi cabinets uh, from that comparison. Um, the overt statements of genocidal intent are uh, unmistakable. There's no effort, as the Germans did make, uh, to conceal uh, what is in store for the Palestinians. Um, there's no no fake um, camp for Jews, uh, set as a, like the one the Nazis set up uh, to bring the Swiss Red Cross in to show how wonderful they were treating um, the people they had taken uh, away from their homes. No effort whatsoever of that sort, uh, just bombing and strafing and murder on the ground. Um, uh, Israel appears to be paying quite a heavy price for that in terms of combat losses, but um, of course is not reporting accurately uh, what is what is happening. Right, so, um, you know, this there's other commentators. I mean, you have experts like Colonel Douglas McGregor in the United States, uh, a British diplomat, um, Alistair Crook, who are basically saying, look, if Israel pursues this, not only are we going to have World War Three, they're going to destroy themselves in the process. So they're trying to get people to see sense. But it's going to be hard given the nature of what we report in this document, the Made in London Temple Mount plot behind the Israel-Hamas war. Um, it shows that this current war was triggered by Israeli provocations at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, these were provocations that started in early 2023, including where worshippers at the mosque were beaten by Israeli police. And this is a sacred site for... Well, it's a, it, Jerusalem is, a, is sacred to three religions, right? Christianity, Judaism and Islam. It's the third. This, this Dome of the Rock f facility, uh, which is on the site of where Solomon's Temple was, um, is the third holiest site in Islam. Right, um, and you've, there's a there's a ex group of extremists in Israel among uh, the practitioners of Judaism in Western countries, including Australia, but especially the United States, among Christian Zionists, what they call Christian Zionists, who, by the way, even though they're Christian Zionists, they believe all Jews are going to hell. 
only Christians get to go to heaven. You've got to be born again Christians according to their formulation. All Jews are going to hell, but the Jews are still God's chosen people. And they have, they, they, they have a literal belief in the Old Testament, oh, sorry, the New Testament book of Revelations, their interpretation of the book of Revelations, which is that there will be a battle of Armageddon in the Middle East, mm. in this part of the world, the plains of Megiddo, right, is this, this area around Israel. That's where the battle of Armageddon will be. And um, Christians will be raptured out before that happens. And that's a good thing. And the battle of Armageddon, which will destroy the world, that's a good thing. This is all prophesied it's supposed to happen. They want to bring it on. They actually want to bring it on. And they're supposed to kick the Arabs out of this mosque yep. and rebuild, rebuild the temple. temple. So that's why they keep making provocations by going into these areas. Yes. And that's what threatened. That's why movements like Hamas respond and retaliate. And, and the, the Hamas attack on the 7th of October, which, by the way, and we're not going to do the details here, there is now a growing body of evidence that the claims about the worst of those atrocities on the 7th of October are um, wildly exaggerated. Now, you know, that the Israeli military themselves are responsible for the majority of the deaths, etc., in, in, in the way they just shoot without caring about the people being held hostage or whatever. Anyway, that's just as an aside, right? But October 7th happened. On the Hamas side, they call it the Al-Aqsa Flood. They name their attack after the site that these crazies who are aided and abetted by people in the Israeli government, now there's two particular guys in the Israeli government in, in Netanyahu's cabinet, because for Netanyahu to survive, Netanyahu should be in prison. Mm. The only reason he's not in prison on corruption charges is because he's prime minister. The, the, the charges are, are suspended while he's prime minister. To become prime minister, he did something this time that he'd never done before. He went to the most extreme part of the makeup parties in the Knesset, the, most ex the worst extremists. He went to them and said, join me in government and he put them in charge of national security and this guy named Gavir, Ben Gavir, who is implicated in the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in 1995 mm. is now the minister for national security in the government and they these people want to commit genocide mm. on the Palestinians they want to because they're, they're such nutcases in their minds they want to bring on this overarching picture but Elisa it's one thing to have those kind of, every society has crazies, etc. But, you know, I'll give, give you a, a, a literature reference. Um, Othello, Shakespeare's Othello. You've got this character, Iago. He wants to cause trouble. So how does he do it? He starts whispering lies in people's ears and pitting one against the other. Any, you, the people who like the world, who like to manipulate the world, they know that's how you do it. And the, in this case, the people doing that to the Middle East, the people who are saying, let's get the most Let's get the extremists and let's inflame them. Mm. Let's keep something going here. Let's make it worse. They're headquartered in London. You've got British elites going right to the royal family um, who are part, who actually sponsor yeah. this Temple Mount stuff. You've got the, the Rothschilds themselves, the, the Rothschild family sponsor the archaeological digs to, in this area to say, oh, this, this is the remnants of Solomon's Temple, right? Freemasonry, by the way, you know, and it's a... It's mostly a joke, but like it's had a it's had a role in history, and it's around the, all the all the the you know the trappings of Freemasonry around this question of Solomon's Temple, right? And so these you've got these really powerful Freemasonic lodges in the UK, where the most powerful people in the British aristocracy and government are part of. In the House of Windsor. In the House of Windsor, they are involved in this as well. Mm. We've got interviews in this report with these very people bragging about their role in these things, right? Yep. And, and now that they have, 
when this was when this was written, published, uh, the 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 Gutsis report was published uh, twenty years ago. You didn't have these extreme crazies in the in the Israeli government. Now you do. The people they created are now in the Israeli government, and that's what's driving this. That's what people have to see and and understand, and we have to expose it. So look, click on the link below. Put aside some time for reading, but also share it. Anyone who you know has concerns in this area, share that, share it with them, and get them to read it. And um, let's get people to have a a deeper understanding of this so if there's any chance we can stop it we actually succeed mm, yep you've got to read it to believe it and also don't forget you can contact us for a copy of our australian alert service to get all the updates on the you know the recent goings on which in this week's one uh includes a tribute to the now late very great john pilger who passed away in the last day of 2023 um one of the well we don't have a high opinion of journalists, but some people, some journalists deserve a very high opinion of them. John yeah. Pilger was one of them. And testament to that is the fact that our tribute to him is his own words. We've <laughs> published right, a right. really, really powerful speech he gave on the the manipulations of, that have created war that have yep, led yep. us to this point right now, which is really powerful to read. Yep. So that's it for this week's show. First of the 2024. More to come. More Stay to come. tuned. Thanks right. for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. See you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.